0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day.
1: Welcome to another bariatric surgery episode of Behind the Knife. It's your team here in Omaha, Nebraska. We thought that we would try to tackle some of the components of original bariatric surgery in this session.
2: There's no way we're going to be able to discuss all the concepts and considerations for revisional surgery, but we've been seeing more and more patients. The most recent uh, estimates by the American Society of Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery is that up to about 25 to 30 percent of patients that are presenting for bariatric surgery at centers in the United States are looking for a revisional
0: option. So this is why it's such a timely topic today. Let's start off with one of the more common revisions that we see have seen, which is patients who have undergone laparoscopic vertical sleeve gastrectomy. The most common reason for these patients to seek revisional bariatric surgery include inadequate weight loss or weight regain, severe GERD, or angulation twisting of their sleeve.
1: Corey, when you see these patients for inadequate weight loss or weight regain, what is your workup for these patients?
2: Well, first off, like any patient that we go back to reoperate on, I'd like to see the operative note. Um, I'm looking for the details of the operation. First off, how long has it been since their surgery? Was it three months ago or was it four years ago? Then I'm looking at the technical details of the operation. How was it done? What was the bougie? First off, did they use a bougie or something to size their sleeve or was it done freehand using the Mach 1 eyeball? Um, If they did use a bougie, what size did they use um, to create the sleeve? Um, there have been various studies trying to determine the ideal bougie size, and I don't think we have a consensus, but the ranges used by surgeons um, both nationally and internationally really do range in size. Um, And I also look at the distance that the surgeon began stapling from the pylorus, trying to get an idea of the antral size. Um, Next, as part of the workup, I like to get an upper GI and an EGD, again, trying to look at the size and the configuration of their vertical sleeve gastrectomy and really trying to evaluate them for any potential for retained
1: fundus. Tiffany, what is the typical size bougie used to create a sleeve uh, here in the United States and why does this matter?
0: Typically, we use between a 36 to a 40 French bougie to create the sleeve. Creation of the vertical sleeve gastrectomy makes the remaining stomach a higher pressure zone relative to the GE junction, which is one of the reasons why there is an increased risk for GERD following a vertical sleeve gastrectomy. This risk is increased when bougies uh, smaller than 36 French are used, and bougies larger than a 40 French. There's concern for a large sleeve, which may contribute to inadequate weight loss or weight regain. Dr. Haskins, can you talk about the paper that you published about? um bougie size and distance from the pylorus?
1: Yes. Yeah, so we were typically well we were actually looking at um the risk of dehydration and readmission to the hospital based on distance from the pylorus when you started the sleeve as well as the size of the bougie. And basically we found using the MVSA equipped database that the further you were from the pylorus when you started the sleeve, meaning at least four to six centimeters, and the smaller the bougie size, so around 36 French, the less likely you were to be readmitted to the hospital for dehydration. And we presume that this is due to some sort of reservoir of that um, remaining stomach uh, relative to the pylorus. Although I know Corey, um, there have been other studies showing that smaller bougie size increases the risk of leak. Is that right? So one of the earliest studies trying to examine
2: this also using the MBSA QIP database did show that bougie sizes smaller than 36 French did have an increased leak rate, particularly, um, well, did have an increased leak rate and the proposed mechanism of action was that the smaller Um, bougie size uh, resulted in a high-pressure system, as Tiffany had mentioned, particularly hypothesized up at that GE junction area where we know there can be an increased risk of ischemic changes. So the original paper trying to tease this apart suggested, um, again, that we should be using in that 36 to 40 range so that you didn't end up with a high-pressure system near the GE junction The second study done out of the MBSAQIP database did not reproduce the first study's findings with relations to leak rate, um, but there continue to be concerns about reflux depending on bougie size. So this is not a settled um, number by any means as we continue to grow the database and continue to evaluate this issue.
1: Yeah, certainly some areas for controversy and unanswered questions as it relates to bougie size. Corey, can you comment a little bit more on why you evaluate for retained fundus in these patients? Certainly. Uh, the fundus um, is, is certainly an
2: important part of the stomach. It contains parietal cells, which are responsible for acid uh, production and release in the stomach. And it's also a major site of ghrelin release, one of the hormones responsible for appetite and food intake. Um, there was a study published in the Journal of the American College of Surgeons in 2014 by Toro et al. that looked at 100 patients who'd had a lap sleeve all by the same group using the same technique who had an upper GI on either day one or day two. Then six months later, they went back and they evaluated all of the patients and they looked at things like their hunger scores and their reflux symptoms. And then they had radiologists go back and blinded look at those post-op day one upper GIs and score and, and they gave a, they created a, a categorization sit, uh, scoring system about what their sleeves looked like. Did they have a dumbbell-shaped sleeve, or did they have retained fundus, or was it a nice straight sleeve with just an antrum at the bottom? And what they found was patients who did have that upper pouch retained reservoir or a dumbbell shaped stomach had higher hunger scores at six months than any of the other configurations. Well, I think all of us who practice bariatrics can really anticipate that if the patients are hungrier already at six months, they are probably not going to be as successful in their weight loss as the patients who are still not hungry at six months. Um, and and we can predict they may not lose as much weight or they will suffer early re-weight gain compared to other patient cohorts. So if I'm seeing somebody who's early in their weight loss trajectory after a sleeve and they're not losing as expected, or they're a little later in their trajectory and they lost, but they're already starting to have early re-weight gain, I worry about the sleeve size. I worry about their sleeve configuration. Now, I am board certified in obesity medicine as well. And so the first thing I usually go to is anti-obesity medications. And that would be a completely different discussion. But if they're really hungry, the first thing I think about is obesity medications that could suppress their hunger. But if we can't control their hunger with medications, or if they've hit their nadir and they haven't had the weight loss
1: and comorbidity resolution they want, then that's when we think about surgical revision. Corey, do you have specific criteria for when a patient may be a candidate for a revision of their sleeve gastrectomy in these cases of inadequate weight loss or weight regain?
2: Well, let me start the conversation by saying most insurance companies require patients be at least one year out from their index operation. They have to have been compliant with all the program requirements to date, and they still have to meet the criteria for weight loss surgery, such as BMI and medical comorbidities. Um, within our program, we usually do have them work with a medical bariatrician and our dietitians to ensure that we can't do this through medical means. Um, but not all insurance companies are going to cover all of the options we might discuss today. Um, some patients really want to preserve their sleeve as a sleeve. And so the first two options I always think about that would leave the sleeve in very much a sleeve configuration, you know, the first least invasive operation that is being offered around the country is a revisional endoscopic sleeve gastroplasty. So this is a purely endoscopic option using the Apollo overstitch to reduce the sleeve volume from inside the sleeve. Um, It is being done as a primary surgery, but as a revisional surgery, the sleeve can be reduced in size and reshaped into a sleeve configuration. And there has been one international multi-center trial that was published in 2021 by Dr. Maselli et al. That looked at nine international centers. There's only 82 patients, but they had the revisional um, endoscopic sleeve gastroplasty they were followed for 12 months and they looked at total body weight loss and complications. And at six months, the patients had lost on average um, 12, I'm sorry, about approximately 13% of their total body weight loss. And by 12 months, 15% plus or minus 7.6% of their total body weight loss. And there really was only one moderate adverse event. And that was narrowing at the GE junction, which resolved with a dilatation. Now, this is a a complex endoscopic procedure that is only being done at specialized centers, but it is an option for patients. Most commonly, however, patients ask about being re-sleeved. They remember what it felt like when they first got their sleeve and they want to sort of be reset to that feeling. Um, unfortunately, resleeving does not seem to be playing out. There are multiple, very small studies between six and 27 patients that look at it. Um, and it does appear safe. Um, I could only find really one leak in the literature, um, but the weight loss really only seems to work if there's a very large redundant fun, um, fundus. But most of the studies I could find were outside the United States, Um, So it's really unclear if this would be reproducible in a United States population with our dietary habits, et cetera. Um, And really the largest study, um, all of the patients had their... excess fundus excised at the same time as a hiatal hernia. So it's unclear in reading the study if they were really trying to achieve additional weight loss or what they were trying to achieve was GERD resolution and a hiatal hernia repair. But I will say in that study of 27 patients, they did have a drop in mean BMI from 35 to 27 at three years. But again, we're not talking about patients that were very heavy to begin with in the scope of the patient populations we're taking care of. So I will say in our patient population here in Nebraska, the vast majority of our patients with a sleeve who are dissatisfied with their weight loss or have had a regain Are not looking to preserve their sleeve; they are looking for a significant weight loss, and so they really want to have a conversation about an anastomotic procedure.
1: So, Corey, let's talk a little bit more about um, the patients that you think would be best for an anastomotic procedure. So, if we're talking about an anastomotic procedure
2: for weight loss, um, there are now currently four ASMBS uh, recognized procedures that are options, and that would be the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, the one anastomosis gastric bypass, or the OAGB, uh, the traditional biliopancreatic diversion with duodenal switch, or the single anastomosis duodenal ileostomy, or the SADI procedure. The decision about which of these operations to do when you're talking about weight loss as your goal is a complex one. Each one of them has different projected weight loss profiles, Uh, short-term surgical risks, they all have slightly different risks when it comes to the perioperative risks, such as bleeding, leak, uh, infection. All of them can be done laparoscopically or robotically. And there are excellent videos online on the ASMBS website uh, and the SAGE's websites that can show you um, how to do this. Um, But they also have long-term protein and micronutrient risks. That are different. And um, all of them do require that the patient stay on vitamins for the rest of their lives. And so it's really important to consider how reliable the patient was when they had their sleeve on taking their supplementations, keeping follow up with their bariatric center as you are making the decision which one to do. Of the four I named, the Ruin Y gastric bypass probably has the lowest risk of protein, calorie, malnutrition, and vitamin deficiencies. The other three definitely have higher risks of protein, calorie, malnutrition, and vitamin risks. So if you have someone who really was lost to follow-up for a period of time or was very intermittent in how they took their uh, supplements, I think you have to be very cautious in which anastomotic procedure you offer them.
1: Yeah, I agree. We've certainly you know, tackled uh, one of the important subsets of patients seeking evaluation for revisional surgery. And certainly there's definitely more to be said outside the context of um, this episode. But I do think we should move on a little bit. And those are the patients that develop symptomatic GERD after their vertical sleeve gastrectomy. What are some considerations for these patients?
0: Part of it, uh, I think, depends on how symptomatic these patients are. For many of these patients, simple lifestyle modification and certain avoidance of foods and over-the-counter medications is sufficient to take care of their reflux. But in a subset of patients, they have significant lifestyle life-altering reflux. And for those patients, that's who I would consider uh, further evaluation for potential conversion operation. Um, As Corey had already mentioned, my first step when evaluating these patients is getting more data. I would obtain the operative note, upper GI, EGD, and I would also consider, um, and I, my personal preference is to obtain a Bravo PH to look at their deMeester score. Specifically, I'm looking to see if the patient had a hiatal hernia at their time of their index operation. Was it fixed? And if so, how was that done? On the upper GI, I'm looking for a recurrence potentially of a hiatal hernia or a nuance at hiatal hernia, as well as the overall sides and shape of the sleeve. Um, As narrowing near the incisura, as well as the angulation of the sleeve can certainly contribute to symptomatic GERD. On the EGD, I'm looking for subjective and objective findings of severe GERD, including grade C or D esophagitis, esophagitis and or Barrett's esophagus on biopsy of the GE junction, and again, any narrowing or angulation encountered. Are there any
1: patients in this cohort that you think may benefit from a revision of their sleeve only?
0: I think there are very few that may get away without a conversion to a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. There are some patients that are adamant that they do not want a conversion to a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. And in patients with narrowing of their sleeve or angulation of their sleeve, it is possible that they may get better with an endoscopic dilation of the sleeve or return to the OR and straightening of the sleeve with either a pexy of the omentum or anterior abdominal wall. However, in my experience, both of these options have very limited and often short-term success.
2: There are some people that also will benefit with excision of that redundant fundus and a good hiatal hernia repair, and there are some very small case series that have been published of using a ligamentum teres wrap to try to pexy the entire sleeve to keep it into the abdomen to prevent a recurrent hiatal hernia, but we don't really have long-term data on that technique yet, but it's definitely something that is worth keeping an eye on for the long-term data, because that seems to be one of the real problems is these patients keeping that sleeve into the abdomen and preventing that recurrent hiatal hernia.
1: Sure. Yeah. I think there's definitely some technical factors, especially if a hiatal hernia was missed during the index operation, um, which would leave lead, of course, to a retained fundus. So Tiffany, when would you offer these options to a patient other than if they're not emotionally ready for a conversion?
0: The only other time I would offer these options would be a very sick patient, usually as a temporizing step as we work towards optimization for for conversion.
1: And is there ever a role for just hiatal hernia repair for their symptomatic GERD? I think we talked about this a little bit.
0: Yes, kind of like Corey had mentioned, if they do have a dilated fundus, there are some patients whose main symptom is dysphagia and some patients who have returned to using a PPI for GERD symptoms. But who do not have objective evidence of severe GERD. In these patients, it's reasonable to offer the hiatal hernia repair only as management for their GERD, kind of like Corey had already mentioned. Again, if they have that dilated fundus, that really needs to be excised.
1: And who do you think absolutely needs a conversion to a Ruin-Y gastric bypass?
0: The patients with evidence of severe GERD who have modified all of their risk factors, such as NSAID use, steroid use, smoking, alcohol use, and caffeine intake, who cannot wean their proton pump inhibitor use and have objective findings of grade C or D esophagitis or Barrett's esophagus.
1: Tiffany, I don't want to get off track too much, but you bring up the importance of EGD findings to help guide the management of patients with GERD after vertical sleep gastrectomy and certainly the use of a pH impedance study or a BRAVO study. Um, However, in these patients um, that are representing to us for de novo or worsening GERD after bariatric surgery, There are some studies that show limited or no correlation between subjective GERD symptoms and objective GERD findings, such that some patients have silent reflux with grade C or D esophagitis or Barrett's esophagus, and some patients that have subjectively very severe GERD and minimal or no objective GERD findings. As we start to begin to have longer term data on patients who undergo vertical sleeve gastrectomy as a standalone procedure, do you think that surveillance endoscopy will be part of the treatment recommendation?
0: Yes, the current recommendations by the ASMBS, as published last year in S.W.O.R.D., is that all sleeve patients should have an EGD at three years post-op where they are having symptoms or not, and if it is normal, then a follow-up endoscopy every five years. If the scope of the three years is abnormal, then follow-up is dictated by the American College of Gastroenterology Guidelines from 2015.
1: Great. Sorry to get sidetracked, but surveillance endoscopy following vertical sleeve gastrectomy seems to be a bit of a hot topic right now. So I wanted to spend a few uh, minutes talking about it. We spent most of our time on patients who have undergone vertical sleeve gastrectomy who require revisional surgery, but they are not the only patients that require revisions. So before wrapping up this session, I did want to talk briefly about some of the other bariatric operations and indications for revisional surgery. Um,
2: Some of the other uh, revisions that we are doing uh, relate to the laparoscopic adjustable gastric band. Um, Several of the bands that were being placed 10, 15 years ago are no longer on the market, but um, some of them that were placed back then are certainly still implanted in patients and patients have had reweight gain and are looking for effective options. Um, when patients come in um, and either their band has slipped or moved and they have a severe GERD or herniation of the fundus above the band, this can lead to reweight gain. Uh, bands can erode into the stomach and they can have severe GERD related to the restrictive nature of the band, or occasionally it does unmask an esophageal dysmotility. And so we are still seeing a significant number of patients that present with bands in place looking for a revisional option.
1: Certainly an important patient population to discuss, Corey. Do you work these patients up similarly to the patients uh, who have undergone vertical sleeve gastrectomy who are seeking revisional bariatric surgery? I do. We still have a a lap band
2: clinic um, where patients with a band can present and they uh, their bands can be evaluated to see if it's an effective uh, weight loss tool. But you know, if we find a band that is eroded, if we find a band that is slipped, we begin the same way. We try to get the op notes if possible. Uh, sometimes it is not, but we get upper GI's and EGDS. Um, sort of the the simplified approach is there are some patients that just need their bands out, either because it's eroded or it is. Um, causing such severe symptoms they are aspiration risks, et cetera, in which case we remove the band and we take care of any additional operations in a staged approach. Other patients may have a minor slip and their primary uh, issues are weight regain or controlled reflux with medications, in which case we can talk about doing single stage operations as necessary.
1: Okay. Okay. And what about the timing of band removal? I know you touched on this a little bit, but um, do you tend to do these patients as single stage approach or um, in stages? So um, outside the United States, these are
2: almost always done as two stage operations. But here in the United States, where patients have a limited number of sick days and time off of work, most patients want this done As a single stage operation, so my standard practice is: um, I treat this as an informed consent uh, discussion, and I will explain to the patient that I will go in, I will remove their band, and then I will do a thorough evaluation of their stomach. If I think it is safe to proceed with the second stage under the same anesthesia, I will do that. But I always reserve the right to abort the operation and come back a second time if. I find any signs that I think the band actually was eroded but not diagnosed through my preoperative studies, then I will abort the procedure. If the stomach is too thick, the the, uh, tissue is too inflamed for uh, the largest staple load we have, I will abort the procedure. If the patient is not doing well under anesthesia, you know, there's a variety of reasons why I might make The decision to abort the procedure. And they have to be comfortable with that. And every once in a while, I have a patient who does not choose me as their surgeon because they want a 100% guarantee it will be done as a single stage, in which case I invite them to choose another bariatric center because I will not make the promise it will happen in one stage.
1: Yeah, I think with these patients, it's certainly important to tailor your approach based on your intraoperative findings um, and we've certainly tackled the two most common groups of patients that we are seeing, at least for revisional surgery. So the patients who have lap bands um, and our vertical sleeve gastrectomy population. But Tiffany, are there any other considerations or subsets of patients you want to briefly discuss before we wrap up
0: this discussion? Thanks, Abby. I just want to discuss briefly patients who have undergone vertical banded gastroplasty since this procedure has fallen out of favor. A lot of times we are seeing these patients either because the restrictive portion of their pouch is no longer present as the stomach has opened up around the TA staple line or the band is causing issues, most commonly dysphagia or significant reflux because that portion of the, the gastric opening is severely narrowed. Similar to Corey, what Corey has already mentioned, the workup for these patients is the same. Obtaining the operative note, upper GI, and EGD, and treatment is aimed at symptom relief. If it's a band-related issue, sometimes just removing the band is not enough, and a lot of times it's just not possible to just remove the band because it's more like a mesh-type substance that's really ingrown into the tissue surrounding it. In patients where the TA staple line has opened up or is seeking revisional bariatric surgery, it's important to remember that the TA staple line and the area where the EA stapler was fired for the band placement are areas of relative ischemia such that the only revisional bariatric surgery option is a RANY gastric bypass. But Corey, let's back up a little bit. Can you describe and give a little bit of the history on the vertical banded gastroplasty? I love that this is an audio
2: presentation, so no one can appreciate that I have more gray hairs than my partners. But so the Gastroplasty, meaning stomach stapling, really was a procedure that evolved over many years, and so there were actually multiple versions of the gastroplasty before bariatric surgery settled on vertical. There were horizontal gastroplasties where they took TA staplers and stapled directly across, and they left an opening either on the lesser curve side or the greater curve side. Then they reinforced those openings with mesh that they wrapped around. And the mesh was usually Marlex mesh. And they realized that didn't work because the fundus would dilate up. Then they started orienting the staple line in a more vertical fashion. And then they realized they also needed to reinforce the opening with mesh. So the vertical banded gastroplasty in the way that really became written down in textbooks, published in Uh, journal articles, and became common around the country. This was an open operation. The surgeons would go in, they would create a small opening uh, in the greater curve, and they would take the anvil of a EEA stapler from the the lesser sac and put it through and through the stomach, approximately four centimeters down um, on the lesser curve. They would fire the EEA stapler from front to back on the stomach, basically creating a stapled circle through and through the stomach. Then from there, they would take a TA stapler and go from that circle up to the angle of hiss. And the early generation, it was a single firing of a TA. Then they went to two firings and then they went to three because these staple lines would break down. Uh, I believe in the final iterations and some of the most, the latest textbooks, there were four firings of TA staplers, all in the interest of trying to prevent the staple lines from dra- breaking down and having the patients regain weight. The bands began as Marlex mesh bands. So they would take a, about a one centimeter strip of Marlex and wrap it around the opening from the lesser curve over to that circle where the EEA had. St- fired, and they would sew it together with proline. In later generations, it moved from being a marlex band to a silastic ring. And this is why when we talk about revising the VBG to something else, you have to understand you're going to encounter a marlex or silastic ring Usually, you're going to encounter a lot of clips. I don't know quite why, but they seem to clip a lot of things. And you're going to encounter a lot of staples. So, um, and I've made this mistake. You know, I had a patient who absolutely did not want a gastric bypass. She wanted a sleeve. And I thought, I looked at the anatomy, I looked at the upper GI, and I thought, sure, I should be able to just sleeve right along that beautifully, skate right up to where that EEA was, and go right up along that staple line. It looks like it should be amenable for conversion into a sleeve. And I realized we. Don't like to make generalities based on an N of one, but my N of one would say, do not do this. Uh, And this is the lesson I learned. Um, As you skate up and you skate right by that EEA and right by that mesh band, even if you can get the mesh band out because it's silastic, the scar is incredibly thick and you keep going up and that is an area of a potential leak. But if you don't get all the mesh out, then when it leaks there, um, it is a leak that is very, very difficult to get to heal. And in fact, it took me six months to get that leak to heal in that patient. So don't do it. As tempting as it is to turn a VBG into a sleeve, don't do it. Um, the right answer is to convert a VBG into a gastric bypass. You want to staple above the mesh band and then vertically up to the angle of hiss, medial to all of those TA staples. And then I personally like to excise, then make another staple line directly across the stomach from the lesser curve to the greater curve. So I'm excising where all that mesh would be where all the vertical staples would be and essentially do a fundectomy. So you're removing all of that inflamed, beat up tissue that was part of the VBG. Then complete the roux exactly the way you would. Your small bowel work is the same. I always use black loads for all of the stomach work because again, you don't know when you're going to be coming across staples. You don't know when you're going to be coming across mesh. You don't know when you're going to be coming across metal clips that were left there by the previous surgeon. And you want to be using the absolute thickest staple lines. You also may need to oversew every staple line you do. These are not revisions for people new in their learning curve. Um, And certainly if you are a newer surgeon, I would encourage you to always do this with your senior partners.
1: Well, Corey, um, I think me and Tiffany both appreciate your gray hairs and your experience with these cases because they're certainly not straightforward. Um, But I do think that this is a great review on our revisional bariatric surgery population. And Corey and Tiffany, thank you so much for your insight.